Hi, and welcome to the 4th U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education at the 4th Universalist Society in the city of New York. In May, we are thinking about how do we make a cultural shift? How do we move from the old ways of doing things to uh, embracing new ways of doing things, not, not just repeating the same old patterns as we make cultural shifts? And so I'm really excited to sit down with the author of Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. Navas Malash is the author of the book who writes under the pen name Nora Samarin. She is a community organizer and teacher. Nava, it's great to sit down with you today. It's really nice to be here with you, Amber. Thanks for having me. Yes. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about uh, your book? Um, sure. Uh, so I'm Nava, um, and I'm speaking to you from the um, traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Um, here where I am, it's the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, also known as Vancouver, BC. Um, and yeah, we got chatting um, when you and, it's Skylar, right? Is the, yeah, when you and Skylar reached out and wanted to talk a little bit about this book. And I guess this is in a, the lead up to a kind of community meeting, like a gathering that we're gonna have where we get to chat with folks in the community, which I'm really looking forward to. I like Unitarians. <laughs> um, so a little bit about the book. Um, so the reason I use the pen name is partly because this project is really not very much about me. Um, it's really been like, I didn't make any of this stuff up. I mean, there's parts of it that have come through personal experience or through inspiration through lived experience and hard sort of struggle. Um, but a lot of the learning for me, it's really collective. It's really learning with other people, learning in relationship. And so I kind of wanted to let go of like the ego part of the, the, the book publishing industry requires you to perform a certain way. And I'm just not, I'm just like, no, <laughs> there's this book out there. People are having experiences with it. And it grew in the same way. It grew uh, because in a very dark time in my life, I um, was, I wrote an essay and put it on a WordPress blog and it went like massively globally viral. And that was really fun. Um, and I was very isolated at the time that I wrote it for reasons I can explain and then have reconnected with community in a really beautiful way, partly through it and partly because of my own life shifting. But um, so because that went viral, then this book happened. And I guess I could, if you want, I could tell, sometimes I tell folks the story of how that happened um, originally, like how the how the essay grew. Would you like? To yeah, no, it? definitely. I think our, our listeners would love to hear about that. Okay. Yeah. So it's a bit of a story. Um, about now, five or six years ago. Um, so the essay was written in 2016. What are we now? 2021. So it was February 2016. For a few months before that, I'd say about the year before that, um, I had stopped being able to read kind of at all for a while. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a lit prof, so, um, and I'm a writer. You know, I've been writing, reading since I was three, writing since I was four. So for me, like text is really, really big in my life. Um, and language and words are really big in my life. And then suddenly that went away. And I had just finished a PhD like two years earlier <laughs> and was started teaching. I was like in my dream job, teaching at a community college, which I really love, I still love it. And then all of a sudden, like, couldn't read my own lecture notes, couldn't read writing that I'd written a year earlier, couldn't read a cereal box. Like, I couldn't read a line of words for a while, for a couple months. 
and I couldn't really speak for a stretch. Um, and it was partly burnout, partly trauma, different factors that um, I learned later why that was happening. But at the time, I didn't know why it was happening. I didn't know how long it was going to be happening. I thought maybe I was never going to be able to go back to my job. And I was lucky that um, my high school best friends, um, my two best friends from high school uh, fell in love with each other and are now married and have two kids. <laughs> We've been friends for like 20 some years, 20, 25 years going on, 24. And they had a spare room because they were planning to have a second kid and they hadn't had her yet. She now exists and is my goddaughter. Um, but at the time they had this like office with a bunch of junk in it. And I like shoved all the junk to one side and got a bed off Craigslist and put it in there and like got in it and pretty much like didn't get out for a good while. And the cat just like stapled herself to my chest. <laughs> the cat was very happy with this arrangement. <laughs> and I, I, um, I was lucky that those close, close friends that are people I trust a lot and they just let me be there without needing to talk for a long time. And I had to face, I had to deal with the fact that everything just was, it had just stopped. Like everything became very, very slow. You know, and this is a year or two into like my first year at my new job where you're working, 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 working. <laughs> it was right after that. And um, I guess it was safety. Like for the first time in my life, I had, I had experienced poverty, you know, episodically growing up. And then in my early twenties, I was like, you know, experienced hunger and homelessness intermittently. And so it was like, I had a good job for the first time with like job security. And I guess my body was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> You're safe, time to fall apart. <laughs> but I was really lucky I had medical leave and I was able to access it, which was really hard because I could barely read the forms, but I had help and, I got two years full medical leave, like in increments, six months, and then another six months. And I got to just heal for the first time in my life, not worry about what was not have to work. And um, I just went into this deep, deep place of stillness that I didn't want, but that I had no say over. It was happening. And I really retreated from, I'd been a community organizer in Vancouver for years, like a decade by that point. I couldn't really talk to anybody except like three or four people. I talked to my sister at the time. I talked to these two close friends and one or two other people that reached out intentionally because I just had no spoons. And um, in that time, I remember just sitting in there, like lying in their room and there was a magnolia tree outside the window, a little baby one. And it was, I remember during the spring, just like lying there watching it be, it Montreal, it's like winter, you know, <laughs> real winter. And then watching the buds come out and literally I think all I did for like a couple of months was like watch them open and that's it it was everything had gone completely still and um I was in that time trying to learn how to reconnect with language and with words and I had been trained through grad school to like write a certain way and like perform a certain kind of theory and I couldn't do that anymore I couldn't understand my own writing so I was trying to understand what was happening to me and also trying to understand some things happening to folks that were close to me at the time. And I was like, okay, if I were just gonna be completely myself and fuck everything I learned I had to do and everything I thought I was supposed to do and everything that I was supposed to perform, if it's just me. And also like it was under a pen name and nobody knew it was me. <laughs> no one's ever gonna know that this is me. <laughs> Very funny. Um, if I had like total freedom to know my own boundaries and know my own feelings and know my own thoughts and that's where I started writing this piece. And I was just learning about some of the things that were leading to this happening to my brain and my nervous system and my spirit, I guess my soul, um, all those levels. I had to heal at all those levels in order to heal. 
and I come from a pretty secular background. I'm Jewish, but I, like very culturally Jewish, but quite secular. So it was learning for me that like, actually there's some soul level healing that I need to do here. <laughs> I didn't have that language or even think like that before. And um, I wrote the piece because I was really just like, if I'm completely true to myself, what would that voice be? And it was that, that's all it was. Um, and then I, funny, there's this moment where, yeah, on uh, at the time on WordPress, when you post your thing, the button you hit is submit, the submit button. <laughs> and I had been working two or three days before this, I'd been working with, I'm working with this osteopath. I worked with some body workers. And I remember just like trying to get to this appointment in Ottawa because I was taking the bus. The only time I ever went anywhere was to go to medical appointments. And I'd go take a bus from Montreal to Ottawa. And it was like the middle of the winter. It's like February and there's a snowstorm. And I got like stuck behind the snowplow on the highway. And it took like like twice as long and I missed the appointment and I called at the last 10 minutes of the appointment I'm on the phone from the bus station to the osteo that I was supposed to see and I'm like <laughs> and I'm like why at, at that point I was feeling like you know I didn't I didn't know why I was still alive frankly like I didn't know why I was still here and I remember being like if this is all that there's going to be then why am I still here like why am I still here and I'm not the I don't think that I would ever be at risk of hurting myself but I just didn't want to be alive anymore and I was like what's and I, I didn't realize this, but a lot of folks have had those moments. And so like once once you start to talk about it, a lot of other people are like, they've looked out at that abyss and, and are willing to talk about it once you're willing to. But I just was like, what's the point? Like, what's this for? And he said, something is trying to come through you. On the phone, I'm at the bus station in Ottawa and I'm like about to get back on the stupid bus in the bus in the snowstorm to go back to Montreal having not made the appointment. And he says, something's trying to come through you and you're fighting it. You need to surrender. You need to give in and I'll help you. And I don't recommend doing this without good help. Like I had really, really good support, but he was like, you need to just surrender and let this happen. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I have tried everything else. So fine. And I just like, let go. And I was like, I'm just going to let myself fall and we'll see what happens. And then two or three days later, that's when I pushed this button and I was like, oh, it's submit, the submit button, <laughs> just like surrender and let whatever's going to happen, happen. And literally within minutes, it had lit up within the first day, there were, I believe, 70,000 views in the first day and 300,000 views in the first week. <laughs> And everyone was like, what's this, Pete? My friends were forwarding it to me being like, you'd really like this. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I bet. <laughs> and like a few people who knew it was me were just like writing me being like, it's everywhere. We're seeing it everywhere. And then, yeah. And then things still stayed very quiet. It was funny. So that's why partly the pen name, I learned later that the pen name at an event in California, someone who's a um, Malaysian said that the pen name in Malay almost perfectly means pen name. Nama Samaran, it means pen name in Malay, apparently, which is wild. So the whole thing was just a very, something just lit up and I just stopped, I just let it come through me. And that's why I don't feel very like attached, like I don't feel a lot of ego about it. I'm like, I don't always even understand what it's doing, but I just let it happen. And then these good relationships form. And since then, slowly, slowly over a few years, I've like found my way back. I'm back at my job and I'm also back in a lot of new relationships have grown out of it and they've been really wonderful. So that's kind of the short, the short story, I guess, of how it happened, the long short story. Yeah. I, I think it counts as, it counts as short. Anything under like an hour when you're trying to <laughs> so a, a major, 
a major life experience counts as a short story. <laughs> I have a seven minute version, but I can't quite focus that much today. So yeah. Yeah, no. I I I really like the thing about uh pen name that that that, that blew my life. mind. She's um, like, did you know that your name, your pen name means pen name? And I was like, what? <laughs> no, I made it by scratch. I literally was like, I need a pen name. Take the letters of my name and throw them up in the air and scramble them and put some back A's in the middle. <laughs> Yes. Something. Uh, you know, sometimes there's there's uh, magic in, in names. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and it's interesting as I listen to your story, I th I, I think about how um, you know you, you named uh, obviously um, having the space, um, which is mm -hmm. to do this healing, which is so countercultural to so much of like what we're. Yes expected of or of having these friends that you can trust which is often also so I mean even Very in rare. the way that, that you went on the journey of writing this blog which then turned into to writing this book you know that yeah. that it was setting the precedent of of this uh imagining a better way of doing things that we don't exactly. have to we don't have to go 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 um we don't yeah. don't have to be individuals we can be supported by others and yeah those are, exactly. those are tough lessons. Um, yeah, I had to get kicked in the ass and literally fall down before I would learn that. And it's very frightening in this culture. It's not something that's encouraged. Right, right. I mean, and we, in the previous podcast that I recorded for this month, we talked about how making these big, huge cultural changes also requires making a lot of internal changes in yes, ourselves too. Yes, absolutely. And, that yeah. it's fractal you know adrian Rebrand says that the change that we need is fractal that we change ourselves change our relationships and that allows us to challenge and change big structural things i think a lot about that right right when i you know i as someone who works in like a congregation like i think a lot about community and how both like individuals and community like it yes you got to be building the healthy relationships there and then that can make a, a bigger impact on, on exactly. the world Exactly. And thinking about the moment that we're in and how many forms of oppression are um, kind of coming, becoming visible when they've just been masked. They've been there functioning this whole time, but like only the people targeted directly by them who were talking, talking, people weren't necessarily forced to hear it. And there's this reckoning has to happen. We're in like a wave where people with power are being forced to hear finally, you know, a lot of things. And, and also some things some things may be worse. Like I think immigration policy is fucking bad right now, for example. But um, there's a lot of struggles that need energy. And I think to fight, to be brave enough and strong enough to fight, we do that together. That's I, the only way I've ever known to be able to challenge really scary, really scary, big forces, big structures of oppression is to be together. And with like four or five people or 20 people or 100 people, you can do a lot more than if you think you're alone. Gosh, this, yeah. this has me, uh, I've had this idea percolating for, for quite some time about either a blog and or a book mm. about like radical and liberatory self-care. Um, so yeah. this, this makes me feel yeah. like more and more like, okay, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. What I mean, you know, you talk about like the the reckoning that's that's going on now, and I think that people, um, you know, people have had this like awakening of of realizing, mm -hmm. um, you know, some people I think are realizing a little bit more than others, but like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, 
I feel like, you know, I, I, I said it last year when everything started with the pandemic, because we got hit by it a little bit earlier in Vietnam when I was living there. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I said, like, if this really goes global, like, like, this is a, this is a, a history changing thing. Like, this is not like a, a small mm-hmm. event we're about to live through here. <laughs> and, um, <You> called it. <laughs> like, I, that coupled with like the, you know, uh, lots of things coming to light has just like, really forced people to to wake up. I know um, in, in other contexts, I've talked about how, um, especially like a lot of Americans uh, have done a lot of mourning about like the what they thought America was and what they thought like that the US could accomplish and that COVID has thrown a lot of that into into doubt and that yeah. has led to real mourning that needs to happen. And- yes, and it's interesting, I think, because I'm not American um, and having grown up like next to this huge juggernaut of the country, <laughs> but not of it, I didn't really know. I remember... Um, I knew of America, the fucked up imperialist power from like age 14. And I don't think I ever, I think I learned the American dream probably later. And I remember retroactively being like, people think America's good. Huh. And having, having a teacher actually explain it to me because I read this E. Cummings poem in like grade 11 and it was like grieving the American dream. And I was like, what does that mean? And she was like, Americans believe that their country is this like good place. I'm totally getting myself into hot water here, I'm sure, but like that it's this good place for people. And I, I've learned later, like relative to Europe and relative to like the very intense class stratification that, you know, where you can't like class mobility as something that's more possible in, US, in the US than in England or somewhere. I get that logic, but like, yeah, America's never looked very good to me. <laughs> and it's not to say, then then we grew up with all our own illusions here. We grew up right. with a whole bunch of Canadian illusions that are a whole other kettle of fish. Right. That have been suppose, painful. I've been grieving that right. over my life. So I know the feeling. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that good, good activism sometimes includes Grief. grieving. It uh, does. Well, and yes. so like throughout the year, we started out like talking about resiliency and how do we like, uh, build community amidst all this and amidst all the struggles of, of COVID. Um, and I figured resiliency was a really key thing to talk about in the middle of COVID. And, but then we moved into how do we be resilient in considering like the justice issues around us. And so we've been looking at things like um, white supremacy in American culture and in religion. We've been looking at colonialism. But, you know, the reason why I, this topic in May and why I was so happy that you were able to join for both the podcast and the, the later conversation is it's about like making, we, we have to make a cultural shift. Like this can't just be that we yeah. say, we say that we did this, like, okay, well, here's our checklist. Like we're not, you know, I, I did. Went to the uh, immigration detention, for, like demo net check. No, I can keep I, being like horrible in our day-to-day life. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah. it involves real change. So like, yeah. what, what do you think that looks like to, to begin to, to make those big, oh, man. like, you know, in, in the case of like with, with uh, your text, like how do you shift to a nurturing culture, a nurturance yeah. culture? Like how do, how do we begin to make that jump? I mean, I got to say, like, I definitely do not have answers. I definitely am like, you know, I love these conversations and I'm so glad that you're like, let's talk about this because that renews I'm like, wait, God, I used to believe in this. Can I still talk about this as something that I have faith in? Because this has been such a traumatizing patch of time, both personally and culturally. But um, but I think that human societies, and I come from one that does have a tradition 
And I've since learned that, you know, of other cultures that have traditions where we hold together, where we understand what fabric is, what cultural fabric is. And so I can say that neoliberalism likes to erase things. Capitalism likes to erase things, right? Colonialism likes to erase things. It likes to cause us to forget so that all we slowly, slowly, we, we think that all we are is individuals who buy things on Amazon, right? <laughs> or just individuals who exchange in a capitalist economy and that that's who we are. And that's not who we are. That's not who humans are. That's not who we've been. That's not who most people have been throughout history. And it's not who we are now. And I think that's why people, are, people suffer when they live like that. We suffer. We suffer when we just replace relationships for things. We suffer, we're in pain. People, are, people hurt when they're isolated because, and that's where for me, None of this is new. Culturally, this knowledge exists, but what is what was new for me anyway was understanding it through the limbic brain and understanding it um, through neurology and the nervous system. That the things that you know, as that our nervous systems have evolved over millennia to exist in relationship with not only other humans but other non-humans, plants, animals. The world that this is actually wired into the limbic areas of our brain and wired through our whole nervous system and that that's why we suffer when that's absent when that's lacking like all of this conversation about the village thing and that humans are we crave the village level interaction um i think we lose an aspect of what makes us human when we lose that when we're atomized and isolated and i think people suffer with that every single fucking day and they know it in western culture that they've lost something or that there's something missing there's something wrong. I think actually a lot of like, this is a side, but a, a lot of polyculture. My friend Eve uh, Rickert, who's a author and a publisher, do you know the book More Than Two? I don't know if you ever, I wasn't expecting to talk about this, but. Um, yeah, I can't say that it, that it rings a bell. It's this really popular poly book. And then there's this really great book called Polysecure that has just come out by Jessica Fern that everyone should read if they're interested in that stuff. Eve mentioned to me, and I forget where she heard this, she, um, she may have heard it through someone else, but part of the reason a lot of people right now that poly culture is like super popular is because people want kin. <laughs> and it's like a way to form kin. And I'm like, oh, I already have that. So thanks. But like, I come from a big extended family, <laughs> you know, and it's got its problems, but at least kin exist. Like there's kinship, you know, there's, you know, who you're, you know, who fourth and fifth cousins are because you grew up with each other. And like, um, I think, so I'd say culturally for me, if I want to talk, I want to, I've been learning it's important to name your influences and name the kind of like legacies that you're, to remember them and to keep bringing them alive to life. So there's like multiple influences for me. And I think if we ground in those traditions of where this knowledge comes from, that reminds us when neoliberalism, when neoliberalism and capitalism want to erase, it reminds us that they're the newcomer, that humans have a lot of knowledge. So like, if I can speak about lineages, let's say for me personally, my own trajectory, and just speaking for myself, because I know lots of different folks come to this from many different ways. Um, I'm Jewish and my family are from Eastern Europe and Holocaust survivors on my dad's side. And they like, my uncles like grew up in a shtetl. <laughs> literally literally actually grew up in a shtetl which is hard for me to imagine i was born in montreal i was born in canada but my dad's an immigrant and there are things that are getting lost now that i'm feeling their loss at this generation as we assimilate i'm watching it occur in live time and there's grief over that because i grew up with something other than what's occurring now as people are dispersed and move and i grew up with a pretty strong value that you hold together that I think comes out of their survival of the World War II experience in Europe, that like, 
they lived, they literally lived because they looked out for each other. And that doesn't mean there isn't, there is also patriarchal violence. There's also, there's a mix, right? Family is not simple, but so it's not to say that it's all peaches and roses or whatever by a long shot, but that a value that I got, let's say from my uncle, Alex, who I grew up with, who I, I grew up with an extended family and my uncle and aunt lived downstairs for me when I was growing up in a duplex with my cousins. And so I'm quite close to this one uncle who's been a huge influence on me. And he really values, you know, you keep talking, you keep talking, you fight, family hurts each other, but you stick it out. You, you take care of each other. You take care of each other physically too. You support each other financially. You know, you're there for each other. And I saw a couple of times as a teen where let's say one person did something wrong. Like my father kicked me out when I was 14. This is part of the story, like of how this influenced me, right? And that's something I was 14, I was too young, you know, but in their, their worldview. And I saw my other uncles turn to him and be like, you can't do that. She's, you can't kick out your kid at 14, take her back. And it was so not a big deal. Like it didn't mean they were never gonna speak again. Or like the idea that conflict means you stop talking was like an at, like it didn't exist in my upbringing. Not to say that people never do it, but that it was uncommon. And the culture encourages and encouraged staying together so that you tell each other, hey, you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean they always recognize. There's things that I think should be handled that way that my family doesn't. <laughs> but when they do, when they recognize it, when they're like, hey, that's against our values, they'll tell you. And it's so not a big deal. It's a dinner table conversation. It's fine. You know, and I really love that. And I learned later, I learned only now from friends of mine that are anarchist Jews that are reclaiming a lot of our um, pre-Zionist traditions and pre-48 traditions there's like a long anarchist jewish movement that was like yiddishist and there's friends of mine that are like reclaiming this stuff and we're all teaching each other things and they're like yeah there's this practice of tshuva and tochacha in jewish tradition that tshuva is the rules about how you make things right when you've caused harm and i think i grew up with those values without being without the word i think i grew up with seeing the practices in some pit patches and and places in my upbringing that influenced me and that felt quite meaningful to me. So it seems like the natural thing to do, which again, I don't wanna oversimplify and say that always people do it, but that it exists. It's, it's a tradition that is there. Chuva is what you do when you have to make things right. And it's really basically transformative justice. Like I read that shit and I'm like, this is exactly aligned with my values. <laughs> like you don't demand forgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice. You have to meet the person's needs. You have to ask what they need. You have to empathize with them and care about the effect. It's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's about making it right for the person who's been harmed. There's restitution. It's really good. And then there's this other concept called tochacha that I just learned like this year. And it's the responsibility that we have to one another to basically call each other in and be like, hey, that thing you're doing sucks, cut it out. But that's like a Jewish concept. <laughs> Once I learned that word, I was like, well, that explains a lot because I never had the experience. Now I have, because my family's changed a lot, but I never had the experience growing up where somebody says, hey, that thing you're doing sucks, don't do it. And then they don't talk for 10 years. <laughs> like this thing that's so normal in, I've since learned in like mainstream North American culture where it's like any disagreement is treated as a life-threatening, terrifying experience <laughs> was definitely not the norm for me. And so for me, that's like my, where I first encountered it. And then I worked at a summer camp for eight years that again, in retrospect, had all kinds of structural, I'm sure that there's like white supremacy functioning in that space. There's class dynamics functioning. There's a lot of, of stuff that I thought, I thought through later that I didn't understand at the time, but that was influenced by Quakers in Western Massachusetts. And we spent a lot of time teaching kids, how do you sit and listen to each other when there's a problem, when someone's hurt, 
we sit in a circle and we take turns hearing each other. And that was a very big influence for me. Maybe I like outgrew its values, but it shaped me. And then only later I learned that um, the transformative justice values that maybe came to me through those, that Quaker influence was also influenced by black American women and like black feminist, the black feminist tradition. And so there's a lot of thinkers in that tradition. And that's a little more delicate for me because it's not my own. So I've come to it like trying to learn respectfully from as someone who's not from that tradition, but that the transformative justice movement as we know it today grows out of um, communities of color and queer communities who like can't call the cops. Um, so influences currently, I'd say, you know, Angela Davis, there's like the whole abolition movement that I'm still thinking through and I'm newer to that, I'm learning about it. Right now, I'd say someone that I really respect who's doing this work is Marian Kaba, if you've ever run across her work. Um, the name sounds familiar, but I, I can't place it right off the top of my head. She's amazing. Um, I've She's got this book out called We Do This Till We Free Us, which actually I've got right here. And if folks haven't read it, I, I recommend it. I think um, it's on my summer reading list. Yeah, it's so good. I've here it is with like stickies all over it. Actually, and I, I might maybe read a quote from this, if that would be welcome. Definitely. Um, so she talks about that, you know, there's a difference between punishment and consequences that people think that anytime anybody ever has a consequence for harm, that that's like them being punished and that that's not the same thing, you know? Um, and that the fact that she has this chapter that I love called accountability is not punishment, where she says, you know, failure, first she says failure is a part of process. Um, she says failure and mistakes are part of a process and that feels counterintuitive because when people are in pain and have been harmed, you think you have to be perfect in order to protect that person from further harm. And what I always tell people, this is the quote, is that as a survivor and as somebody who's been around survivors my entire life in my community, we're actually not fragile beings. We are incredibly, incredibly pragmatic and very resilient because we've survived a lot of bullshit. And so she says, our process, start off with the idea that our process allows for survivors to reclaim agency. And I'm like, yeah, for me, like I said about Chuva, it focuses on the agency of the person who's been harmed because when you've experienced, I mean, and here this will connect into stuff we were talking about before we hit record, you and I, that like when you're experiencing structural violence, your agency just gets fucking smashed, like obliterated. It's not even like, there's not even a word for the kind of obliteration. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but the like, to even come into language, to even have a say over your own body, to have a say over the definitions of oneself, to, to be able to speak, to be able to think, to be able to read, like when that's gone and, you know, make no mistake, like structural violence does that to people, it traumatizes people. And that's some of the effects of trauma. So, you know, right dissociation is an effect of structural violence in human people and that's a massive loss of agency right so upholding agency is huge right no definitely like i think that um so much of the the imagining a new, a new culture imagining a move forward involves so much healing from all of this uh this trauma that, that's that's been inflicted and yes. also as you were talking i couldn't help but think um i I definitely am. While, while I love my my country and green mm -hmm. space time, I'm I'm very much a, a city slicker sometimes. And I think mm. that part of the reason that I am is because I love stumbling upon like community in cities mm -hmm. and just seeing how it develops 
like when we were in Vietnam and just watching like the huge, huge crowds of people come out of our 19 floor apartment building to all mm. hang out like down in the, on the ground floor level and have their kids playing with each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the, the big city life, like it has those special moments where you can see that community kind of overcomes everything. Like that the, like the people are going to find their way to, to find community. Like we just aren't meant to be these, these commodities. We're not meant to just like, gosh, like I, I love the connectivity that social media and like the internet brings us, but like um, I, I did a digital minimalism stint in the earlier mm. part of the year and it just felt so freeing to like not be like waiting for others to be like communicating to me that I could be having conversations on my own and yeah. um, I, I didn't need to worry about likes. So we've turned so much into a commodity, but like community is going to find a way anyways. Like it it yeah. always does. We do. Yeah. We're, we're like water. We're like drops of water that want to find each other and form up pools. Mm -hmm. And that means that we need. And so coming back to what you were saying earlier about resisting oppression and the idea of things being fractal that we were talking about earlier, that how do we form? I think your question was like, how do we form culture and thinking about your own congregation, thinking about the community that you're in, thinking about the communities that I'm in, what does it look like? And I, I wrote this book because I took certain things for granted that people would know, oh, well, when harm happens, we turn towards each other. We sit in a circle, we talk it out, <laughs> which I had experienced in what in retrospect were pockets of community that is not at all the way the mainstream culture works in Canada or I think in the States. And I was a bit shocked to discover that in my organizing community with all these folks who are really committed to social justice, that when somebody sexually abuses somebody or when somebody mm, manipulatively like narcissistic abuse style kind of manipulative abuse lying and deception and manipulation when that happens that rather than doing what I thought would be natural which is turn towards each other cluster up and deal with that because we need to be strong at that level in order to resist big structural stuff we can't have a weak foundation and then fight fight you know trump <laughs> we can't because in order to deal with repression from the state in order to deal with you know resisting massive violence and massive like immigration regimes and white supremacy in order to do that in order to challenge that we need to know that when those systems try to break us we'll have somewhere soft to land where we'll be held when you take that away people become much more weak much more vulnerable much more likely to just try to burrow into whatever individual privilege we can get access to because that's the constant noise of this culture anyway to counter that we need to know that we'll be taken care of by each other and that means heard listened to believed and the flip side is that when when you're in a culture like i, I have since learned a lot of this culture that i live in in canada anyway is like that it comes out of a fear of direct conversations, a fear of confrontation, a fear of challenge that usually is mobilized to silence people who are facing oppression. Like the biggest way that's, that um, cancel culture is used is to punch down on people who face structural violence and tell them to shut the fuck up and stop talking about it because we're uncomfortable with challenging power. And at the micro level, internally, at a very granular level in our interpersonal relationships, we try to shut the fuck, we try to shut people up who name violence that's happening in our communities rather than support them and protect them. And that is the shift that I guess, I, I was shocked by that when I encountered it. And I wrote the book because I was so confused. <laughs> and I was like, wait, that's just gonna make all of our cultures 
fragment. And if we're fragmented, we can't resist together. Don't you know that? And people didn't know that. And I was just like, I thought that was obvious. I thought that was a given. And I think that comes out of like the Holocaust survivor experience where like, I grew up learning that, and now I, I have a more nuanced understanding of what actually happened and how fucked up humans are really, because we're pretty messed up species. <laughs> There's good human societies that do better things, but there's some screwed up shit as a species level among humans. We have to choose what we feed in us. But then, um, you know, I grew up with the stories that the worst thing was not necessarily the Nazis, but the bystanders, like the, the North Americans who didn't believe us, who said, oh, it's not true because it's Jewish voices saying what's happening, right? Like, and that's where trauma, I've learned since now, that's where really profound trauma and dissociation come in. It's not the harm itself. It's the bystanders not believing you and not protecting you. And so actually, yeah, to come back to the Mariam Kaba book, one of the things that I love that she talks about is um, different kinds of success. Like she says, you know, okay. So the thing I was gonna say before is that she says accountability, punishment is not consequences. And we have to understand that if we're gonna be able to hold together. She says, um, if I'm at my core interested in dismantling systems of oppression, I have to get rid of punishment, but I want accountability. I want people to take responsibility. I want that internal resource that allows you to take responsibility for harms that you commit against yourself and other people. I want that to be a central part of how we interact with each other. Because while I don't believe in punishment, I do believe in consequences for actions that are done to harm other people. I do, I think boundaries are important. You know, and that's very much how I feel. I feel like, I think of it as standards. Like if we can't turn to each other and say, I love you, you're good, I care about you, but your actions in this situation do not, are not up to the standards of our community, step up. I expect you to act better. I expect you to go care about that person and make it right. If we can't do that with each other, and if instead we just like turn away, then we are gonna be vulnerable to the worst types of fascism. Like there is a direct connection between our ability to do this with one another and our ability to resist authoritarianism. They are directly related. And they're related at the neurological level and they're related at the social level. And I feel that very strongly. And I feel a lot of pain around day-to-day -day experiences that I've had where people don't seem able to recognize that. So I guess that's the motivation for doing the book. Oh, I think a little gosh, rant there. <laughs> no, it's it's all hitting home for me, and especially talking about um, you know I, I I've heard of my fair share of places like radical organizations getting then allegations about mm -hmm. abuse and about manipulative abuse and about and it being mis mishandled. These kinds of dynamic people who do these types of things are woven through our whole culture and our organizing communities are no different they're through through and through our communities there are people with these who are going to do these kinds of things for both because so my friend emmy kane who is an organizer in the bay um has you know challenged me a bunch around like thinking about the difference between uh, the difference between harm and abuse that we need to distinguish mm -hmm. them that we all hurt each other we all cause harm that's true and abuse is a next level thing that has to be treated differently and handled differently. Mm. And the main difference for me is like, how do you respond when someone tells you that you've hurt somebody? And if someone is like, oh God, I'm really sorry, tell me more. I wanna learn about it so that I don't keep doing it. And they really change and they really care. And they're internally, like that quote, if they're internally motivated to, to empathy, to, to care and to, to do the right thing, 
that's a very different situation and we have to handle that very differently than when there's like darvo and lying and manipulation and evasion and right. all that crazy stuff that all that like manipulative stuff that breaks communities which is through all of them and i think mm -hmm. people i underestimated the extent to which people lacked basic skills to sit down and handle this without further punishing um survivors mm. And that trauma happens not when the not at the original harm, but at the betrayal by the bystanders. That's when things get really traumatizing. Like major, it disconnects us from our belonging as humans. Mm. When people see us being hurt and don't intervene and are silent, or make it worse, tell us it's our fault. Mm. Right. You know. I think. Gosh. The, wow. It's all just like uh, mm. sitting with me. I. I I'm going to be. Um, I think we'll be thinking on a lot of this for, for a well, few weeks. Do you have bit ways that it resonates for you? Because I feel like part of what's so amazing for me is, is like learning with people. Right. You know, like what are some of the ways that you feel like it lands for you or where have you seen it? Or if you want to talk about that, if you don't. No, no, I think, you know, that, um, gosh, like uh, as, as, as a trans woman that grew up evangelical uh, <laughs> and being like, I, I remember afterwards when I, started to like post on Facebook and maybe call out and be like hey guys here's some unhealthy things that evangelicalism does and then some people who were still in that world would be like why is it that you're always attacking evangelicals it's like because I understand the damage that that you're doing but you know there's people are so quick to um yeah to to run away or to 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 not handle yeah to not handle the the um a situation they, they'd much rather just sweep it under the rug and hope it, hope it goes away yeah. yeah when when we turn away from one another when harm happens what that does is it preserves existing power and it kneecaps the ability to fight back and resist mm. and that's like so inherently clear to me like i guess because my we all have our own what i've learned through this work is that we all have our own internal ingrained responses to harm and mine, for whatever reason, is to turn towards it and to be like, well, obviously now we're all going to like get together and talk it over and work it out. That's my instinct. And I have had to work on slowing down and being okay, understanding that different people have different responses because I didn't mm. know that. I honestly was unaware because I think until you run up against it, you might think that whatever you do is what everyone does. At least I was like that. So I was quite shocked to discover that organizers who are radical lefties who really see themselves as committed to justice would just turn away from survivors when they were being abused and that that's mm. actually a very common response i just was unaware and when i first ran into that i was quite traumatized by it because it was new um, and it's how this culture polices challenges acting through our bodies but it is a very strong response a lot of people's knee-jerk response that they experienced growing up was to just turn away because that manages the physiological arousal that's like more than people can handle so I think a, a good skill, I hope that what people work on is calming their bodies so that they can, Alex Johnson, who's in the book, who um, one of the other influences that I, I meant to mention was the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, BATJC, that are fantastic. Um, I encourage, you know, check out their, their website and their materials. That's one of the places that I learned from when I was like trying to learn more about this. And um, I was really lucky that someone who'd been in the BATJC, Alex Johnson, um, happened to be in Montreal and some friends connected us and she offered some BATJC like training, like Skillshare, because it's just, it's all, none of us are professionals. It's all, nobody gets paid. It's just like each one teach one 
skill building kind of that's how people it's like some some folks is organizing right you know right and so she trained us in some of these skills and one of the things she pointed out was like that you can move into the interstices between and this is actually in the last chapter of the book talking about on the ground how this looks you can move into the interstices between disconnection and connection like I can't uh as somebody as um Actually, I was the Saima, um, who's the editor of Briar Patch magazine, um, who I was chatting with about some of this stuff, said, you know, I can't swallow the ocean. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, in this culture, because we don't have a contain, it's not like my community is 100 people in a town and I just know them and that's it. It's like the internet, it's huge. And our organizing communities are huge now, even our interpersonal, when we know each other, it's huge. And we don't all live in the same cities. So we can't do everything. We would do nothing if we tried to do everything. But you can move into the interstices between connection and disconnection rather than doing nothing, which denies interdependence. I can say, well, I don't want to necessarily be like your best friend, but I can do one task to support the process. I can, you know, just not promote the person that has abused you, or I can just tell you that I believe you. Or I can, there's usually like, I have this, I have one hour <laughs> and I can use it to support the process. And then I'm going to go back to my life because I can't just do this because I'll get flattened because there's so much of it. There's an ocean of it. But that people think that if we do anything at all, we're going to be like overwhelmed by the amount of need. And that that means that sometimes we just hide and do nothing. And when we do nothing, when we just turn away, that does not create conditions of safety for survivors. Yeah. But there are small things we can do that are time bound that are quite manageable and it's to look for those places that honor connectivity honor connection without um without needing to necessarily be super intimate or close i don't know but yeah you were saying like yeah um naming dynamics that you've seen in your upbringing that are like messed up and then people punching down on that instead of being like oh thanks and being curious <laughs> right. right people people don't want to don't want to think about doing things a different way um, yeah, I mean, that's I what think, we mean. It's such a yeah, gift. Yeah, that's the that. Um, gosh, there was it was uh, the uh, trying to explain different denominations and things. Um, I, I spent some time in the, the reform tradition. I know nothing, so yeah, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> um, and but one of the big phrases that they they used was like this idea of already but not yet and it was about like oh. you know um when is jesus going to come back sort of thing um oh, so more related cool. to that but the idea has um really stuck with me irregardless of my other development since then yeah of living in that like paradox between two points and that yes. being okay like that yes, it's okay yes to... exactly Exactly. One of one of my uh, cohort at, at seminary, yeah. uh, her thesis was very much about like both and theology. Look, yeah. people will ask me a question, I'll be like, "How about both?" Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's it's okay to live to live in that paradox sometimes, and I think that's where real change happens is when we let ourselves be okay. With, yes. with living in those challenging moments exactly without it being an excuse to be wishy-washy or like bypassing or something the real thing where you're like both and where you're like i'm uncomfortable with this and i'm willing to take a step towards it like i think about that dealing with uh, white supremacy so actually another influence is um sandra kim who ran a she she was the editor or or uh producer maybe editor anyway she was one of the people running or who founded um everyday feminism that online news 
website. Mm -hmm. And then she branched out and she was running these classes on uh, called Compassionate Activism, like an online course. A few years ago, like six or eight years ago, before online courses were like everything. <laughs> um, so it was unusual. I was like, oh, an online course, um, like over Zoom, I think six years ago. And um, and maybe it was five years ago. I, I took, there was one for people of color, one for white folks, and some folks did both or self-selected or whatever. I took the one with for white folks with a friend of mine, who's actually also in the book, um, Arvinda took that one with me, who's a mixed race woman who's identifies as like a mixed race white woman, like she, her mom is black. She sort of got white privilege, so she talks about her whiteness, and she's she's doing work around whiteness with white folks. Um, and uh, yeah, we took it together. And she's also someone I've learned a lot from. She's a very beautiful soul, and she thinks a lot about it, those that inner work to challenge the conditioning into white supremacy. It's like a lot of her gifts that she's giving the world, hard as that is to do. And um, she, what was the? She talked about. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. So I took Sandra Kim's training and there was this moment when she, I don't know how, what she was doing. She comes out of this Buddhist tradition as well. So she's getting right at the soul work and she like pushes you right up against the things in you that whiteness has numbed. Like the things that are, you know, there's that, what is it? Eduardo Galeano who's like, you know, the oppressor also loses something that there's like- Is that, uh, that Friere? Friere maybe, yeah. I think there's there's different I've seen different quotes from yeah. each of them. Galliano probably said it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think in the veins of Latin America, Galliano said this, and Ferrer has also talked about it. And then like, uh, you know, there's that quote that they attribute who they always attribute it to. Uh, what is it? An Australian woman organizer who said she didn't say it. She just. But that's like if you've come here to work with me because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let's work together. If you've come here to save me, then like. Go away. Go away. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know that quote. I think it's really true. Yeah. But to make to live that, like to experience that, because what what blocks empathy? Like, why do I see I, I hear about one person's type type of suffering? Like I hear about, you know, a woman who's experienced gendered violence, you know, or it, for me to then extend that into like trans misogyny and to, I can just reach into understand the depths of I don't know whether I fully understand it, but at least there's like a way in to be like this is violence against women that is so severe that it's like I can imagine how debilitating that would be that I empathize with like instinctively because I've lived bits of that but then anti-black racism I understand how terrible it is very intellectually there's less visceral and I it's embarrassing to admit that but I, I think it's important to be tra transparent in order to do the work like that I get it when it connects to an individual friend or a person I care about then I care but when I see it on the news, I don't have the visceral response that I think black folks talk about having when they see that kind of violence against other black people in the news. And I'm like, well, what does that say about what whiteness has done to me? It's turned off something in my humanity so that I don't resonate in the same way. I have to like think my way to it. It's, mm -hmm. it's disgusting and terrifying, but I don't immediately identify with the person facing the violence, right? Mm -hmm. And she, Sandra Kim's thing would, she'd take you to that point. And it was like, I was feeling the part of my soul that was numb like at the dentist. And then I kept checking out, I kept passing out. Like I kept falling asleep and I wasn't tired. And I think about that with masculinity where like the violence that I faced, well, class. Like when I've talked with people who've been upper class or middle class all their lives, who've never been hungry, who've never not known where their next you know meal was gonna come from. And that was the norm for many years in my life who just have been wrapped in that bubble wrap of economic protection all their lives. There's like a disconnect. And you wonder what that does to the soul of the person. And um, 
I think that there's beauty in reclaiming those parts of ourselves, but it's fucking painful. So the interstices are that I will take a step towards it, one step. And mm. when it hurts, I'll just stay there. <laughs> and at least in the, in, the, in the interim, intellectually, like there are men in my life that let's say don't have the empathy for the experiences that I'm having when I've been abused, but that intellectually understand it enough that they can take the right action. They mm. can act to protect me. So I think that both of those are moving into the interstices. You can take a step towards doing the thing that creates protection for targets. And mm -hmm. if more of us do that, then the fabric does transform. And so I'm glad to talk to you about this because it reminds me that I have known that at points. <laughs> and I think renewing the faith in that takes talking it over, takes remembering it, takes sharing that together and having that experience together. Definitely. Wow. There's been so much wisdom in this conversation. Um, if folks want to hear from you, you are going to be coming on May 25th, 2021 to our, our In Conversation. If they want to find you online to read the, the WordPress blog, um, <laughs> uh, well, the... we can put it in the show notes, but if, okay. you, want to, if you want to plug anything uh, here at the you end of the podcast. Go to norasamaran.com. That's where all the writing started. That's where like the, that's where the blog happened. And then the book is through AK Press, but it's available everywhere. It's in stores and stuff. Um, so it's called Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. And it's a series of, it's three essays that were from the blog and then a series of conversations mm -hmm. with um, Ruby Smith Diaz, who talks about white supremacy and what it's like to be um, like joyful and alive as a black woman and as a black person in a white supremacist culture. Aravinda, Alex Johnson, also Serena Bender, who we haven't talked about, who talks about centering trans perspectives when understanding gender. Cause like there were some limitations to the original essay based on my own, me writing out of my own experience. And mm. that was great. Cause she just brought a bunch of challenges and I was like, bring it on. <laughs> so that chapter sort of tries to, it's paired with the nurturance essay to try to be a bit of a corrective to it. And then Natalie Knight, who talks about that in the context of colonization and white supremacy mm. and gendered violence together. Yeah, so folks can check the book out or they can just look up the free stuff online. That's all good. I'm fine with whatever. It's a project, of, it's a labor of love. I don't actually earn any money from the project. <laughs> or very little little snippets here and there <laughs> but yeah that's where they can find it i also seriously check out Miriam kava's work um there's a website called transformharm.org that i recommend check out sandra kim's work um and there's a bunch of other organizers i can give you a list of uh, possible resources if folks want to learn more about this because yes. it's a big it's not really i'm just learning together with with you and you know it's really not about any one person yes. i find we're, we're all helping each Together, other learn figuring yeah. this stuff out no, yeah. we will, I, i'll get that list of links from you and we will include it in the show notes amazing thanks so nava thank you so much for for coming on today such a pleasure to be here thanks for the chat and i'm really looking forward to the 25th and meeting other folks in your congregation and thanks as always to all of our listeners mm -hmm.